page 1097. I'll give you a second to find it. First Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. I urge then, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and for all of those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, Jesus Christ himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Ashley. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's truly my joy. Um, I want to start here this morning. Let's look at this picture together. Are these plants real? Just look at it. Look at the flower petals. Look at the leaves. Look at the pot, the pixelation. Now, show of hands, real quick, who thinks that these flowers are real? All right. Whoa. Now, who thinks they're fake? Ah, okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to tell you the answer quite yet. Because we could debate this all day. I could pass the mic, and I could go to some of you who said it was real, and you're like, well, those look like the plants in my backyard. I could go to others of you and say, no, that picture is too distorted. There's no way those plants are real. The leaves are too green, what have you. We could do this all day. 
But if we chose to do that, we would miss an opportunity to see the bigger picture. We would miss an opportunity to see the bigger picture. It's not that the first image isn't important, but the cropped image doesn't tell us what's happening in the bigger picture, nor does it invite us to gaze at the invitations the bigger picture has to offer us. By the way, this is my youngest child, Journey, and she is delicious. <laughs> Could look at this picture all day. As we continue in week three of this ancient letter to a modern church, we encounter a collection of verses in the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses Trace didn't read that have been cropped. They've been debated for much of modern history and are still debated today. But if we were to skip over verses 1 through 7, we would be doing a disservice to the text because the text shows us a bigger picture. We'll talk about verses 8 through 15 in a few minutes, but first, the bigger picture needs some framing. If you weren't with us for weeks one and two of this series, Tim and Troy did a masterful job of walking us through chapter one. I'm not going to repeat all of what they had to say, but let's assume these major plot points that they walked us through already. First, Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy, who he says is his son in the faith, and we only have Paul's side of the correspondence. Remember that. Two, Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus. And there's a big house, if you will. Okay, I see you Michigan fans. Big house. The temple of the goddess Artemis, the Greek goddess, where this is a hub of cultural and religious life. But not only that, false teachings have been perpetuated, and Paul is warning against them. If you were here last week, Troy told us that Paul was spilling some tea about two of the false teachers that were mixing things up. And he told you, I was going to tell you more about them being handed over to Satan. That was a lie. I'm not going to go there, but we'll hit some other stuff today. Don't you worry. With that brief setup in mind, the big picture of this part of the text requires us to zoom in and consider what life was actually like for the believers in the Ephesian church. Paul knew that the church's beliefs plus their behaviors informed who they were becoming. Their beliefs plus their behaviors that followed informed who they were becoming as the church in Ephesus. And as we're asking this question, what kind of church do we want to become here at Mars Hill Bible Church? There are surely some invitations for us to consider as we take a closer look at what's going on in Ephesus. 
Now I have to pause and say here, much of the research that I'm going to give to you today comes from scholars from the Junior Project, from N.T. Wright, from Catherine Clark Kroger and Mary Evans, Bob Edwards, many people who have taken a deep dive into this text and we're just going to extrapolate a few of their uh, points of scholarship today. So first their belief. If we rewind back to the first chapter of First Timothy, you'll see in verse 4, this is why Trace encouraged us to have our Bibles this morning, verse 4 where Paul says, he urges them so that they uh, command persons not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. That's key. Now understand the temple of Artemis was here and Artemis came with her own creation myth. Some versions say that Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo, but Artemis was born first. That's important. Artemis was born first. Some say a whole day before Apollo, her twin, was born. And she actually, according to this myth, may have helped her mother birth her twin. And so Artemis is held up as a source of life and goodness. She was worshipped as superior to Apollo. Not only that, she was worshipped as the goddess of fertility who saved women through childbirth. She was called, this is important, Artemis Savior. And the women of Ephesus would worship her as uh, signs of thanksgiving or gratitude by laying expensive garments atop her image in the temple. Needless to say, this was causing some issues. We take it a step further, and because Artemis was protective of her purity, she was sometimes worshipped through violent rituals against men as signs of self-denial. Uh-oh. Paul is concerned. Imagine the church being proximate to all of what's happening in the temple of Artemis, and not just proximate to, but now entangled with. Clearly the church had started to take parts of the Artemis narrative, borrowing from beliefs about power and superiority and salvation. And before long, their devotion is now intertwined. A little bit of Artemis, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And as we'll see, those beliefs give way to certain behaviors in the gathered, worshiping life of the church. It begs the question, as I read this, with what else, with what else is our devotion to Jesus intertwined? If you had to look at that phrase, a little blank, a little Jesus. If you allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart, what else, what other sources and objects of devotion would be found? A little consumerism, Amazon Prime, a little Jesus. A little football, a little Jesus. A little self-care and self-help, 
little crystals and astrology, a little Jesus. For the church at Ephesus, those beliefs gave way to certain behaviors that Paul absolutely needed to address. He needed to address their prayer life. He needed to address what they were proclaiming. And then he addressed the posture that they were taking in worship. A couple minutes on the first two, and then a few more minutes on the last one. You'll see why. So the first behavior that Paul has to address is their prayer life as part of the worshiping gathered body. Two authors put it this way. There looks to be a narrow-minded spirit in Ephesus. There looks to be a narrow-minded spirit in Ephesus. Why? If we look at the text, look at how many times Paul has to stress everyone, all, all people. Multiple times, Paul is calling the church at Ephesus to come back to the breadth of the good news of Jesus Christ and who's included in that good news. There's a particular stress here on kings and all those in authority because if we rewind the tape, in the Greco-Roman world at that point in history, a cruel young emperor by the name of Nero was in charge. Nero persecuted Christians mercilessly, blamed an entire fire on Christians and caused them to be sent to their deaths in Rome. The church in Ephesus knows this. And they hear Paul telling them to pray for all, including kings and those in authority. How challenging must it have been for those Christians to consider praying for the monster in Rome? And yet Paul, the self-proclaimed worst sinner of them all, says that they must do so because who they choose to pray for is directly tied to their ability to live peaceful, underline that word if you're an underliner in your Bible, to live peaceful and quiet or translated tranquil lives marked by godliness and holiness. Who's currently not good enough for your prayers? Who's currently not good enough to be worthy of your prayers? Maybe it's an ex, a former boss, someone who's neglected you in your past. But for all of us, as we approach an election season and see signs popping up in yards, perhaps we take this text a little more literally and we directly challenge ourselves to pray for the person who's batting for the other team. Can you imagine? Can you even imagine it? N.T. Wright says, don't rest content with the simplistic agendas of the world that suggest you should either idolize your present political system or be working to overthrow it. Try praying. Paul says God wants all people 
all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So if that's what God wants, if that's what God actually wants, would we dare? Would we dare pray for President Biden and Tudor Dixon? Would we dare pray for Gretchen Whitmer, John Gibbs, and Hillary Skolton? I don't know these people. I just see their names all over the place. Would we dare pray for each one? Not so that the circumstances would necessarily be righted overnight. Remember, Nero was still in charge, and Paul eventually dies but so that our collective witness as the world watches going at each other's throat might see the life of a group of believers who are marked by tranquility, holiness, godliness, and peace. Our witness depends on who we pray for. So you who have received that mercy, Mars Hill, pray. Pray. May we become a church that refuses to offend God's desires by excluding those we deem unworthy of our prayers. But he didn't just talk about their life in prayer. He, he has to address what they're proclaiming. Paul, rejecting that salvation would come from the emperor, from Artemis, or anywhere else, proclaims God as our savior. Just in case the believers had forgotten, he reminds them, there's one God, one mediator between God and humans, that being Jesus Christ, and then he reminds them of the work of Christ, taking them back to the basics to reset the record from all the false doctrines that had been circulating. If you ever show up at church and you're like, why are we talking about this again? Why do we keep talking about Jesus? Perhaps we live in a world and are immersed in a culture that would slowly yet surely tempt us to think that anything else is a source of our salvation. And we need to remind ourselves again and again and again and feast again and again and pray the prayers of the people again and again and lift our hands proclaiming these truths in musical worship again and again, Marcel, because as the church of Ephesus was demonstrating it's too easy to proclaim something else. So it's like in the 90s when you watched a movie on a VHS tape. Teens ask your folks what VHS stands for. I am the proud retiree of a blockbuster store. That was my first paying job. I, um, I, I was on the team that switched VHS to DVD. That was me. But what did you do when the tape wasn't working? Y'all know where I'm going. What did you do? You took it out, you lifted that little plastic flap thing, and what did you do to get it to work? You blew on it. What were we blowing? I don't know, dust, well wishes, <laughs> hopes and dreams. I don't know why we did that. I don't know, but we did it. We lifted the flap. And we blew on it because we were hoping that that sort of gesture would clear the tape. Paul is here in Ephesus trying to clear the truth tape 
of the church, trying to rid it of all that might come in the way of them proclaiming what actually happened, what actually should have been proclaimed. Because their belief in alternate sources was tainting their witness as the church in their time. I think it's humorous that he kind of hurries up and tries to convince he's not lying. He's like, I'm not making it up, I'm honest. I read that as a bit of Bible humor. Like, I, y'all, I'm not lying to you. I'm not like those, those false teachers. I'm telling you the truth. I'm, I'm honest. I'm not lying to you. If we were to take a good look at ourselves, Mars Hill, what needs to be cleared from our truth tape? A couple of ideas for you, for us. Our salvation will never be in the size of this church, be it large or small. It'll never be in our president, our governor, or our lead pastor. It won't be in the size of our building. Our salvation won't be in the size of our budget, though the joy boxes are still in the back. This church's hope is in Christ alone. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and I hope forever. If we are doing our jobs correctly, our job is to proclaim the hope found in Jesus Christ and to not aim that hope anywhere else that you might find it. This church has been sustained and nourished by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through you, this gathered body. That's how this works. May we not proclaim anything else and become a church that treasures and worships anything other than what's true about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, Paul had to address their posture. Now, let me begin this last section by reminding us, we are staying big picture. Pull up journey again. Yep. We're staying big picture. We are not going to formulate a watertight argument in the next few minutes for why women should be able to teach and lead in the entire church. That's not what you're about to hear. But I would be remiss if I didn't take two seconds of opportunity to personally say how grateful I am that at this church, my gifts as a woman to lead and preach are valued and uplifted. Thank you. And there are some young men and women, young, middle school, high school in the room. I just want to say, your gifts, given freely by the Spirit, can and should and I hope are used to their fullest potential here in this community. You are part of us and we want to do all that we can to remind you that as long as the Spirit is at work within you, come, show up, be part of what God is doing. Lean in fully. I hope you never forget that. With that said, I'd like to read verses 8 through 15 now. <laughs> so if you would turn with me to verse 8. Paul continues 
Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray. Lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So next week, Troy is going to explain. <laughs> what tomfoolery is this? Passing off the hard parts to me. Okay, real quick. But I want us to lean in here. Paul continues and addresses both men and women who are part of the worshiping body. That's first. To the men, let's just start here. He says, pray. There are less lines about the men in this chapter, but that doesn't mean this is less valuable or less urgent. Men of Mars Hill Bible Church, I'm not sure what you have been taught about what manlyhood is all about. But I really, really hope that you would lead the charge in teaching us how to be a prayerful people. Pray for your families. Pray for your community. Pray for this church. Pray for the world. What if Brian had to close down his prayer short circle because all the men here decided the best way I can lead my family and in my community in this season is to become a more devoted follower in my prayer life? What if? What if Brian and John and Troy weren't the only ones praying in the back for people at the end of service? He said, I want you to pray, lifting up holy hands. Paul is noticing something about the Ephesian men in particular. They were praying, but apparently without an acceptable posture. Their posture was wrong. You know you can go through the motions, you can tick the boxes of what you were taught in VBS and Sunday school, but if your heart is not in the right place, if your heart is filled with anger and resentment or any other sorts of tainted uh, feelings or emotions, do you know that God wants to, for you to come before him fully open and vulnerable with the appropriate posture, just as you would the right practice. Paul says, I want you to pray, but with the right motives. Your motives matter. I wonder what would change in our prayer lives if we would show up, not just for 30 minutes, but with the right heart. So why do you pray? Why do you pray? Paul addresses the men. But then here we have to spend most of our time because then there are these women. These women are in the church at Ephesus and we have to talk about their posture too. 
Well, first, how they were dressing, according to Paul, was pointing to a different object of worship. You can see there at the end of 10, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. How they were showing up in the worshiping body was pointing to something else. This has less or maybe even nothing to do with what we've translated modesty to be, being how much skin someone is showing. And it likely had more to do in the Ephesian Greco-Roman context with their elaborate and ornate appearance because the elaboration and how ornate you were said something about your status. It said something about your wealth. It had something, said something about your rank in society. We'll see more about how women were exploiting money in chapter five in a couple of weeks. But these women were showing up and elevating themselves above all the others, remember who are we praying for? All. These women were elevating themselves with their appearance by choosing to wear certain clothing. Remember also that women would drape the image of Artemis with expensive clothes as an offering of thanksgiving. Keeping these things in mind, Paul was reminding the women that nothing should confuse or detract from the true object of the church's worship, and that's God. So then he moves on. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Paul affirms one thing here in this whole line of texts. Women should learn. He affirms that. Everything else frames the conditions of that directive. To learn here means through practical experience or through inquiry. Some might even say it has a rabbinical context, to learn as a, a disciple, to a rabbi. But what Paul is saying here, note the word quietness in 11, is the same word in the Greek that I asked you to underline earlier in verse 2 when he was talking to men and women. So he's saying, it's as if he's saying these women should learn in peace. These women should learn in tranquility. Submitted to whom? Not necessarily to a husband. I at least don't see that in the text. But perhaps to the subject of their study, their teacher's convictions, even to God. So he's saying something about how the women learn, their posture of learning, and, and how they should approach that space. Now keep in mind what certain women had believed. They believed in an alternate creation myth where Artemis was superior to Apollo. They were sometimes self-sacrificing to this goddess through violent acts against men. There's so many articles on this one word in the text that we read in the Bible as authority. But when you look in ancient Greek literature, the word authority is, has about 300 different translations tied to it. Maybe even more. Those translations include author of crimes, doer of a massacre, to have the upper hand, powerful and dominating. One could say, again, given the bigger picture of this frame, that Paul is against the Ephesian women translating idolatrous beliefs into behavior that perpetuated violence and sought complete domination over the men in the community. And then there's that word again in verse 12, they must be quiet. What do we now know quietness means? They must be tranquil. They must be at peace. 
Because in the Artemis myth, where Artemis was created first, perhaps these women even started to believe that not only were men inferior, but also that maybe even Eve was first. Maybe Eve was created first, and she's the superior being in the creation story. Paul corrects a false doctrine. Remember the full scope of the frame of why he's even writing this. Paul corrects a false doctrine and clears the truth tape once again. No, no, no. Eve didn't come before Adam. Adam, in our creation story, came before Eve. Paul's breaking apart and separating what's untrue from what is true. Finally, verse 15. There are about four to five interpretations of what uh, was a pervasive belief among the women in Ephesus. One that I find interesting and that we might try on this morning is that this one phrase, women will be saved through childbearing, may have been a popularly repeated phrase amongst Ephesian women as they were sacrificing or giving thanks to Artemis. So it could be that Paul was repeating and attaching a popular phrase at the time and then telling the women, no, but actually, you won't be saved by what you do. It's not by your works. But if you continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Oh. <laughs> That's a lot to consider. And we can always talk this out more at a later time. But for now, I want to speak to the women just as I spoke to the men. To all my ladies in the house, in our desire to affirm and to elevate our own worth, may we not forget that we are created in conjunction with and to be in unity with our brothers in Christ. Paul was saying, don't love kind of the supremacy of what Artemis presents herself to be so much that you then overthrow the design of the church that Christ has set before you. And that would be my word to us as well. Let's not be men haters. Men, I hope you can affirm the gifts of the women and the young girls in this community. And women, I hope you can see that we need each other. Paul takes his time to correct what's been perpetuated as false because he knew that whatever beliefs they held would influence their behaviors and ultimately the kind of church that they were becoming. Not as separate from their culture of the empire, but as a witness in the midst of it. What do we want the witness of Mars Hill to proclaim about our God? May we be a church that refuses to offend God's desires. God wants all. God wants all. Our prayers should reflect that. May we be a church that actively treasures what's true in a culture of deception and hollow promises. 
And finally, may we be a church that has enough faith and courage to name when the truth tape needs to be cleared, when false teaching needs to be righted, so that our actions represent the one true God. As we come to the table, Jesus gave up his upper hand. All authority was given to him. Jesus gave it up. That's a big picture this morning that deserves our full focus. Paul says in the text that he gave himself as a ransom for all people, for all people, everyone, even the people you can't imagine being on the other side, seated across from you. He was a ransom for the Pauls and the Timothys, the Neros, the men and the women for you and me. So it is with that good news for all of us, church, that I say the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, Jesus took the cup. And likewise, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. For whenever you take this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I'm going to pray, but as I pray, I want to invite us to think of the person who wasn't once worthy of your prayers, receiving from this same table with you. Would you pray with me now? How right and a good and a joyful thing at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and remind us of your desire. Would you knit us together? Would the truth become clear? Would we have a heart to pray for and want what you want, all people to come and know the good news of the mediator, Jesus Christ? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So at this time, we expand our view of who's included at this table even more. It's not just those in this room or those of you watching online. But there are brothers and sisters around the world who are proclaiming a mystery, something that we 
may never know. We may not have all the answers, we may never have the right interpretations, but we will proclaim this mystery of our faith together. And that's this, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We have John and a few of us in the back who would love to pray for you. We have gluten-free elements at all the tables in between the aisles, a place for you to put your prayers. Our staff would love to pray for you this week. We do so every Tuesday. At this time, all is ready. Receive who you are, the body of Christ.